Hello and welcome to the Six Ways from Sunday podcast. Uh, today, my guest is Dan McMillan, who I went to high school with. So I am so excited to reconnect with Dan. Dan, welcome to the Six Ways from Sunday podcast. Thank you, Ben. Nice it's, to see you too. It's so great to do this, and I'm so glad that you're able to make some time. So, Dan, you are a, a therapist and a clinical psychologist in Calgary, Alberta. Um, director of Assured Psychology, which is a firm based in Calgary. And uh, I, we're going to, you know, jump into um, all of that. But first, I, I think I'd like to give a little bit of a, an idea for our listeners who might be new, and maybe they're just checking out this episode because they heard that Dan McMillan is coming on the podcast, and mm-hmm. maybe they want to hear your story, and they've never checked out any past episodes uh, this we're in season six, episode six of the Six Ways from Sunday podcast. So that's a lot of sixes. We have like 120 some episodes on our website, and really, this podcast for me is always just focused on having uh, laid back, organic conversations where we can explore deep questions about life as a human being. So these are the kind of conversations that you know when you have a you're having a a long, slow cup of coffee with someone and you can really start talking about life and you get comfortable and you're just, you're going to just sip that coffee for like an hour and really get into some, some good conversation. Or you're sitting around a campfire and you're sharing stories and really taking time where you just, you kind of lose track of time. That's the the feeling that I, that I tried to get to with these conversations, whether it be about um, an individual's uh, spiritual journey their work that they're doing. I've talked to activists and book authors and artists and indigenous elders and just some incredible people on this podcast. So Dan, why I thought about you and got in touch with you just this week was I was out walking my dog and I had seen a post by a friend on uh, Instagram about the housing crisis in Calgary. And my wife Kelly and I had been talking recently about just the rising cost of living and everything. And all of this got me thinking about how there must be so many people right now that are really struggling with just the pressures of life and uh, inflation and the cost cost of living. And people often don't know where to go for support. Um, They might be really in need of a therapist or a psychologist and feeling like, well, I can't, you know, afford to put some, some money into that. But, you know, I just got me thinking, who do I know? that is maybe working in that space and trying to support people um, that I could talk to on this podcast. And I, I right away thought of you. So I'm so glad that you were able to, uh, to make some time. So where I would like to start then, Dan, is tell me a little bit about um, your practice in Calgary and the type of therapy that you do. Sure. Um, and first of all, thank you for inviting me. And I, I hadn't, I didn't even know you were doing this, Ben, to be frank, because we haven't connected since 15 years, but um, I did look up your podcast and um, I just wanted to compliment you because, um, you know, a spiritual podcast, I went in with, I think, some ideas of what it could be, Um, but to see spiritual podcast, I saw your list, you know, that someone coming out of faith was one of your titles, you had an uh, indigenous elder, you had an activist, you had a drag queen. Um, and I thought, like, this is really great. Like, we're we're like to to have a spiritual focus that includes a lot of the populations that have been marginalized. Um, I, I I just I was impressed with that, and it instantly sort of lowered my own preconceptions. I, I consider myself a spiritual person, but like some of my 
own kind of hesitations around certain religious practices. So I, I thought that that was wonderful to see. And it, so I just wanted to kind of compliment you on that. Thanks, Dan. That means a lot. That's definitely yeah. what, we're, what we're striving to be all about. Yeah, and it, it has, and it's relevant to mental health because you know, the marginalization of, of a person impacts significantly impacts their well-being. So um, to feel inclusive and to, to feel recognized, I think, uh, matters. My clients tell me that. To answer your question um, about my practice, I'm a clinical psychologist, so I've been working, I've been doing different types of therapy for coming up on 20 years next year. Um, so we've been doing this a while. Uh, my practice primarily, I'm a clinical psychologist, so it focuses on mental health. But what I discovered in my journey was I really started thinking about why people showed up with what they showed up, like, you know, hour after hour, day in, day out, especially when I was working for our services, like seeing really ill people why, like, what is mental health? What is this about? And it's deeper than genetics. It's far deeper. Your genetics get activated, but they get back to activated by your environment. And so I, I started directing my practice towards what I thought really mattered to people. So I am a clinical psychologist. I work primarily with adults and couples. But the focus of my work has a lot to do with uh, emotions, uh, relationships, um, those are the two primary drivers as well as trauma. There's more to mental health than those three things, but those are three ingredients that I think are under-recognized right now in our, in our um, discussion about what is mental health. We've come away from the shame model towards a biological model, but we've sort of stopped there. So, so to a long answer to a short question, but how I practice is working with adults and couples primarily. I used to work with teens, but sort of transitioned to adults several years ago. And with a focus on sort of understanding the deeper reasons of why they do what they do and why they're suffering when they come in the office, rather than just teaching them ways to, to cope. Got it. So, I mean, you can you can give someone who's bleeding a bandage and, and stop the bleeding, but if they're going to go right back into their life and keep doing that activity that's hurting them, that's causing the hurt, you're not yeah. really getting to the root of the, the pain, right? Yeah, or you can see a physician and give you medication for your heart disease, but if you don't change your lifestyle or understand, like, for example, if you eat poorly because you grew up in poverty and, and you learned to insert the cheaper foods, which tend to be the greasier foods, like, and that pattern continues in your life, and now you have heart disease at 50, um, the medication is important, but you all, probably your physicians also didn't discuss lifestyle changes. And really, if they were trauma informed, they would. And if that was hard for you to make the change, then we would look at what are the barriers for that. And if the barrier is that the, your parents were doing the best they could and continuing your diet, this is all hypothetical, but is a way to protect the legacy of them. Um, then that's where we have to start to make the change. That is completely hypothetical. I made that up. Yeah, just a just a random example. Yeah, I love it. Oh, it's it's great though because, um, you know, you're with anyone who walks in and whatever baggage they're bringing from their past. We all have that. We all. Uh, you mentioned that you focus on. I think it was relationships, uh, trauma, emotions. and emotions. So, I mean, those are pretty general terms. Like we all obviously have a range of emotions that we go through throughout any given day. All of us have 
uh, relationships that are challenging. You, you can't, we can't live, uh, we can't get through this world without relationships. We need connection, right? Um, which is something that you talk about in your children's book, which uh, we're going to get to. Um, love that the timing of this. That I think you, I understand you just released uh, a children's yeah. book based on a story that you use with with clients, um, uh, and and it talks about the importance of connection and forming healthy connections, and how even a, a, a healthy connection, a healthy relationship, is always going to bring about points of stress or points of uh, you know, my needs maybe coming up against your needs and how do we, in a, in a friendship or in a family relationship or in an intimate relationship, how do we both make sure that we're meeting, having our needs met and, you know, respecting and honoring the other person in that relationship. It's, it's tricky and we're always going to make mistakes. We're always going to have breakdowns in relationships. You know, I've I don't know about you, Dan, I've been married for 14 and a half years, been in a relationship with Kelly for 15 years. And we just had a fight on the weekend that terrified me. I was like white knuckle terrified and felt so unsafe. And then in the aftermath of that, we were able to, because we've you know, gone through enough conflict and, and explored it and had healthy conversation afterwards, I, we were able to unpack some stuff and see some new things that just strengthen that relationship. So um, I'm just, I'm curious when you have people walk into your office, regardless of what they're going through, do you have sort of a, a standardized, like, okay, here's the approach I'm going to take to just sort of uncover some of the past and some of the stuff that's affecting this person's well, overall well being that they might be completely blind to, or do you just, is it, does it look completely different with each person? Yeah, um, it's a hard question. I think of therapists have a, a, a tool box and tools within it. And so your toolbox is sort of a mixture of your clinical modalities that you practice from and that you've trained in and your own, it's an individual blend, your own individual blend of how you deliver that, how that fits into your personality, other fits into your values. Um, and then within it, you have tools. And I think sometimes psychology discovers very powerful tools, um, but they have to be used within within this kind of schema of like a larger skill set, larger with delivery method. If I go buy a sledgehammer or a sawzall, but I'm not a carpenter, and I decide I'm going to renovate my house using this one tool, you know, it's not ideal. I, it's effective sometimes. So there are some very powerful tools that exist in the right context are really useful. So my toolbox, uh, my clinical modality, my toolbox would be primarily something called emotionally focused therapy with things like internal family systems, and a little bit of Rogerian, but that doesn't matter. It's sort of, those are the clinical trainings and modalities of practice mixed with my personal belief that all human beings suffer and that um, in that suffering, we all deserve compassion. It's our universal right. Uh, and so I have a, a sort of system that's developed over the years as people walk in, but it's not really manualized like, okay, step one, step right. two. I got it. I can't, yeah, I, I hear from a person what's going on and then I begin to understand this sort of begin to explore how they're managing, what are their 
systems are like that helps regulate them and then what's going on deeper that makes these issues you know like if i bump your knee it hurts but if i bump your knee and you have a torn acl or a historical issue there it hurts a lot and so what's going on that makes these issues particularly relevant what's your understanding the meaning you've made of your suffering where did you develop that like it, it's complicated mm. But it is individualized within this toolbox. And then within this toolbox, they sort of use the tools they think would be useful. Yeah. I'm, I'm really curious about this term um, EFT, or emotional focused, emotionally focused therapy. I've, I've heard of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, I know there's there's a number of different uh, approaches to therapy. Um, but it's focusing just confusing on... for people when they're oh, shopping sure. for therapy. It's so confusing. Yeah. For sure. So, uh, emotionally focused therapy then obviously you're focusing on the emotions and feelings um, that a person is experiencing how what does it look like for um, a patient for a client who's coming in and going through a, a session of EFT yes yeah, so I used to be a CBT heavy therapist um, like most when I when I interviewed new therapists most of them say that um, because it really gave me a sense of control over like this neat, tidy way to sort of approach the world is intellectualize it. Um, you know, if you can change your thinking, maybe change, that'll change things, which it does work when you're resourced. You know, right, you just told me about you and Kelly coming back together and being able to sort of debrief, do some repair, help her understand, help you understand, and begin to shift your understanding of the conflict that person. It works when you're resourced. In the middle of fight, how did that go? Didn't work so well, trying to understand, right? Because when we're, we have two neurological systems for information. One is when you resource, it does, your thinking does, and your perspective does influence it. The other is when you're activated, uh, you know, we have, that takes too long. Our thoughts are too slow. So we have a very quick neurological system that skips that, that works through our emotions and works through our old brain, which is uh, in our inner brain which has a lot of emotions and has a lot of relationship ties. So in those moments, you knew that you need to reconnect with Kelly. You felt hurt or frustrated or angry. Those emotions were signaling for you to do certain things, you know, your anger to set a boundary, your sadness to, to have your hurt seen, your shame that even though you probably wanted to go away with it, but it made the real driver of it is to be reassured and loved. Um, and if you can find a way for those things to have a vulnerable expression and to be tended to, your thinking tends to come along. Yes, so it's not just focused on emotions. It's just understanding that emotions are such a substantial part of our life. Um, we do have other things. Our cognition matters, um, but our emotions and our relationships drive. To me, after sitting with you know 10,000 clients or hours of clients, I, I moved away from focusing on cognition and thought, even though that tidied up the messiness of humanity in my work, giving someone homework and telling them that they, they just think wrong about the world and they change their cognitive disbelief, their behaviors will follow, which is great and they would do it. But then the next time they're going to fight, they would fall back on these very old mechanisms learned in childhood mostly or through trauma. So that's what sort of drove me was this understanding that if I ask you the most important moments of your life, the most hurtful moments of your life, it will come back to how you felt and who mm. was there, who wasn't there for you. And so if I want to make a change in people's life, I want to make a difference, I have to start with those meaningful things. Intuitively, I know matter in my life. 
but when I step in my office, they can't be abandoned so, so that I can work with you in this colder, more scientific way. And, and I say this hesitantly because in the field, this is a real preface right now on these more manualized. CBT is still very popular. Um, I have nothing against CBT. It's a tool in the toolbox. But I, it's yeah. not, to me, I have to be able to sit with a person that's hurting and share that emotional space. And a big part of what hurts us and helps us is our connection with other people. And that's just intuitive. We all know that. So clinically, we need to practice from that, I believe. Mm-hmm. Not everyone would agree with me. Even saying this, I know that there will be people that disagree with this. Yeah, well, I mean, whether we're talking about um, mental health or physical health, like uh, medicine, whether you're talking, to, there's so many approaches to health, right? Like, or fitness or anything around wellness. You talk to 10 different people, you're going to get 10 different opinions and around what's the best approach and the best way to eat, the best way to move your body, the best way to um, heal your mind, heal your trauma. It's, it's overwhelming. It, it totally would be. Yeah. Um, so speaking of overwhelming uh, and what made me uh, think about, you know, reaching out to you, Dan, uh, just... I know you're well aware of this, but we're at a kind of a crazy time right now in our world. And not, not this is not just a Calgary thing or an Alberta thing, um, but in Canada for sure. We and I'm sure many other parts of the world, but in our context here, we're like we're in the middle of this crazy uh, period of in- economic inflation. We're in a, a housing crisis in most of our our uh, urban centers in Canada. I was just reading something this morning about the housing crisis in Calgary. And uh, there was a, a reference made to an article uh, from Toronto where they're advertising that the solution to the housing crisis in Toronto is move to Alberta. <laughs> so, but it's, it's pretty bad here too. Yeah, so yeah. You, you live in Calgary. I live in little old Basha, the you know, town of less than 900 people. So we don't experience it uh, nearly the same way. And of course, um, real estate is a completely different, it's like being on a different planet almost. But I mean, there are like students just like have nowhere to, to live right now in Calgary. There's mm-hmm. like a 3% uh, vacancy rate that the cost of housing has gone up. I think uh, I saw somewhere like around 30% or something in one year. Food costs have gone up 10 to 20% in one year. Um, and this one is really disturbing uh, and or concerning. The, the increase from 2020 to 2023 in the use of food banks in Calgary specifically has gone up 73%. That was posted by my friend Kat in Calgary. Thank you, Kat, for bringing, um, shedding some light on some of these issues. Uh, those are some scary numbers. So with that, with, with seeing how many more people are in need of support just to make ends meet, um, often in, you know, that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like if things are that dire that you're having to, you know, go and use things like the food bank and other supports and programs just to literally feed yourself and or your, or your family, um, some of those higher up needs of emotional needs and, and uh, mental health are for sure going on the wayside. So it kind of becomes this vicious cycle where the worst situation you're in in your life the less able you are to work on your your thoughts work on your you know go through your emotions and and work on your relationships that it can start to snowball and i'm sure that you see that a lot but 
what are you seeing or what what are your thoughts dan on just kind of the state of things right now whether it be in your community in calgary or just what you're seeing coming you know in the news around some of these issues it's uh, a big question <laughs> <laughs> it is um you know i mean i really feel people right now like people are hurting um i think i can't remember what the study was but years ago they did this study about people's perception of how, how things were going around crime and the actual crime numbers um i think there is a real genuine genuine feeling a lot of people have that um life is getting worse or, or their life will be harder um you know, the inflation, the cost of housing definitely impacts that food um, or, or environmental crisis, the divisiveness politically. Like, uh, I think that it's it's a hard time. It reassures me that there have been many hard times in the past, um, you know, and continue to be. Um, but it is a hard time on so many levels with so many new factors, including the internet and social media being such a prevalent factor. Um, and it's not, it's one of those systemic things where, you know, you can't take a fish out of the water, clean it off, put it back in the water and expect it to remain clean. Like a, a person that lives under systemic pressure, pressures, whether they be financial, prejudicial, um, health, um, they're going to be impacted on their well-being. And, and you're right, the, 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 it can equal lack of resources, lack of opportunity and energy, um, as well as it also limits the ability of change they have. They, they can make change, they can learn to sail in the storm of stress to some degree, but to a large, another degree, we have to step back and look at what is going on. You know, To me, as a, as a therapist and as a couple of therapists, one of my primary concerns is our isolation. Like we, these are our stressors right now, but the number one way that we regulate is we're born co-regulating. We don't know how to regulate. A baby does not regulate itself, as you know. It's they learn to regulate through the parent, and even then, we only learn maybe 40, 50 percent. We and that's only the first 50 percent. After that, we need to co-regulate stress. And so my a big concern I have is how isolated we are when dealing with all these um, stressors. In that isolation can come because we can no longer afford to live within the neighborhood of our apartment complex or can come because our marriage is failing because the financial stress is put on both parties. Um, so our natural human way to buffer stress far beyond anything else, and it's the best predictor of well-being. It's Harvard released that longitudinal study. It's the best predictor of how long you live in life, um, which is crazy. I had a smoking and genetics and diabetes. Um, is our, our relationship. So I don't have an answer to the strain of the world. It, it's a bit heartbreaking, to be honest. The strain I see in, when I was in the public sector is more what you're talking about, high housing insecurity, food insecurity, um, racism, sexism, homophobia. Um, and now the pressures now in private practice are a little bit different, but th there exists still. I just had this this morning is, of the golden handcuffs of needing to work more and more and more to just to provide 
what you see is the basics or is needed. Even though most of the world doesn't live in the way we live, most of the world doesn't have a yard, doesn't have a, you know, a house. Um, uh, and we forget that, like, I think, don't we, Dan? Like, we forget yeah. that not not all seven point whatever billion people on the planet live the way we do in the West. Yeah, I just heard what what the 1% is worldwide. It's over $30,000 a year American. A year in the 1% if you if wow. make more than that. Yeah. But at the same time, you can't look at someone who makes, yeah. you know, $41,000 and think, well, you, you should be grateful. You, you have it easy yeah, exactly. because they don't, exactly. live in, they don't live in the Congo. They don't exactly. live in Venezuela. The, they, they live in Calgary and they can't your, pay their rent. Your rent is 2500 you know, and, yeah. and, or you can't, or your housing. Exactly. So it's not meant to invalidate at all. Um, no. The pressures are definitely increasing, I think, on people. I, I don't know, but it feels that way. I think most people feel that. I think the isolation is increasing, or at least the isolation between the camps of belief. So mm. you know, um, mm. which is creating greater divide. Um, yeah, I mean, I tend to be an optimist, um, believing that we can make changes when we need to. But it, yeah, it's it's terrible. I, I don't have a simple answer. I think. You, well, anytime we see economic strain, we see higher rates of depression, anxiety, suicidality, um, severe mental illness, it's going to increase or it is increasing, yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, you'll, you'll get the sense that I, I pose questions on this podcast that don't have neat, tidy answers. And that's, <laughs> that's intentional because yeah. I think it, it creates great discussion. But um, if I curious, can answer that, how to solve that, I would. Right. <laughs> and then I had totally one. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing i'm curious dan with um over the last several years when you you speak about isolation do you feel like in the wellness community or in the mental health community or space um in in your world of of being a psychologist and a therapist have we learned even more about the power of isolation or the importance of connection because of the covid pandemic and having gone through a a couple years of even more isolation. So like you're practicing in Calgary, it's a pretty big city. Um, I I have the, I I live in a community of like I said, 900 people and I have lived in cities before, but I I have the personal belief that our species doesn't know yet how to live in a city of a million people. We're, we're not evolved to, we evolved around the campfire sharing stories and living in a village where you knew everyone and for tens of thousands of years. And now our species is at this weird inflection point where globally our urban population is just surpassing. We're just in the process in our generation, Dan, of surpassing mm-hmm. urban population, surpassing rural population. And it, mm-hmm. and the trend, the trajectory of that is, is a pretty steep curve where you know, 10, 20 years from now, we're going to have vastly more people living in huge cities than we have living in villages and communities, small rural communities, not just in Alberta, but globally. And so the irony is that you have all of these people in these mega cities that are feeling alone and feeling isolated and are under these heightened stressors of higher costs of living compared to somewhere like Basha, where instead, you know, our, our, our $200,000 house here in Basha would be a million dollar home in Calgary. Like it's, it's so yeah, out of, 
No, yeah. In Calgary, there's nothing for that. Yeah, here. Yeah. So, like the the contrast is is so enormous. But as we become more urbanized and and have these rising costs, where you have people working full time that are you know a single person working full time is unless they have a you know a higher income as a professional career or something they they're struggling just to pay their bills or just to pay mm-hmm. their rent let alone not even having kids um and so you know, we've just come through this global pandemic where it's like the i feel like the world kind of was just waking up to like oh yeah mental health is important and yeah we've talked about you know we need to talk about our our mental health and you have celebrities and and bell has their let's talk thing and you know once or twice a year people will like come out about their depression or whatever and and that's you know we all applaud that that person but i feel like during the pandemic there was like an actual like okay no we really do need to take mental health more seriously and we really do um there really is an impact on our mental health when we're isolated when we're alone um but i just think it's as we become more urban urbanized as a population it's so important to really understand the role that isolation plays and the, and how how do we live in cities and form healthy connections so that people aren't feeling alone as they're facing rising costs and, and added pressures. Mm-hmm. Do, do you feel like your, your profession, and I know you can't speak on behalf of psychologists across Alberta or even in Calgary, but do you feel like the profession is is learning even more having come through this pandemic? Um, <laughs> no, that's my um, so like the pandemic really seemed to give pause to people and realize that we do need each other. Um, you know, the, the, the strain of being isolated significantly impacted people. I think a lot of people generally one of the big takeaways, I don't know if it created long-term change, but one of the big takeaways was that we do need community. Um, now, human beings, you're right, don't form communities of a million people. Typically, we lived in villages of between 30 to maybe 150 people. Um, so we tend to form intimate communities, uh, intimate packs, and that um, that's very important for our, our safety and well-being. That's how we survived for a long time. Um, so I think the pandemic generally gave police over time helped highlight how important that connection is now that we're sort of out of it. Did it create long-term changing? Did we more intentional communities? I don't know. And I don't think it's so simple as us just knowing that. If you ask everyone they want more friends, it's a crazy stat, like something like half of men over 35 can't list one close friend. Um, they think it's why there's an epidemic of suicidality and depression in men. Um, it's a sad thing because human beings are complicated and we get hurt by each other. We yearn for connection. We've also been all, we have all been hurt deeply by each other in some ways, some more than others. We've all been hurt. So we both have these defenses to each other and ways to guard against those, including how we present what we avoid, what we engage in, what we anxiously grab onto. And we um, have a, a, this, it's like a a, a rock and a hard place almost. We have a a fundamental need for each other, but then we also have these fundamental defenses, the hurt we've encountered. So we can't show up bare and vulnerable, most securely attached to do a fairly good job of that. But so how do we form these communities and what gets 
in our way is a very complicated thing. I think most people know that they want more community. I want more community. You know, I, um, I want to be closer with people in life. Uh, but what gets in the way, I get in my own way. And they get in their own way. And, and I agree, we don't have systems built towards these. I drive in my garage, I close the door, right? Like I, um, we, you know, we, there are some systems, you know, living systems or um, systems that engage, force people to engage. So culturally, we don't in the West really encourage this, but our systems are built by people. And when people are, um, <laughs> so did the mental health community learn more? I mean, the research on attachment has been clear for since the 50s. It started with kids and you didn't used to be able to visit your child in the hospital. You dropped them off. I still have clients that have lived through this with polio and whatnot. You drop off your kid. Imagine this. You drop off your kid and then a week later you pick them up at four or at five or six. Like, And that was the norm. Because, um, you know, not hugging your children as a father was the norm. Um, it was believed it would spoil them and make them weak. So John Bowlby really changed with his work on attachment, changed our understanding of the need for connection. But the need for adult connection, especially romantic, um, deep romantic connection, as well as community, has been clear for 50, 60 years now. The research isn't just in, men, in mental health or psychology. It's in physical health, in the study of viruses. Like, I mean, the UK de developed the Department, department of Loneliness because it, it kills so many people. Um, you die earlier if you're lonely. Um, the, like the science is clear, but I don't, I mean, like most strug struggles with human behavior, the, the knowing isn't enough. It's the thing that gets in our way. Uh, and all of us have been hurt and all of us have a hard time overcoming that um, when not forced to. So if I'm not forced to be in an intimate community and work out my issues with my neighbor, I'll just, the one I don't like, I'll just avoid them a little bit, right? Like, like, <laughs> Easy. Um, but if we had a farm potatoes together, I might not. <laughs> you know, I might, we might have it out and sort it out. Um, so I, I, I think we still have a pandemic of loneliness that got realized for a brief time and then has returned. And I think that loneliness is fueling our mental health concerns, um, especially things like depression, anxiety. Um, they're not the only part, like you said, there's systemic pressures, but our loneliness is so substantial and so unseen for the most part, even though every person's lament to some degree. Yeah. And that's where relationships matter to me. We all the in it used to have a close group, and most people only identify their partner or their family as sort of their close intimate um, relationships now, if they are lucky enough to have those. And so all the pressure of our human need for connection, intimate deep connection is a lot of it, 90% of it resting on your partnership. And are we really getting any education on how to do that? Do we understand in school, are we learning about what is our attachment system, what are the different patterns? No, most people just think the relationship will take care of itself, or if I'm a good person, you're a good person, or we'll lead side-by-side -side lives and we'll interact that way. Um, so I think we have a cultural failing on on um, understanding how to decrease that loneliness in our own home and what mm. to do when we feel lonely in a relationship, which will happen. Yeah, it's, it's inevitable. Like, I, I, Dan, I literally grew up thinking that if I, if I found the right partner, like, air quotes, the right partner, there just wouldn't be any fights. Yeah, people say <laughs> that. Movies teach that. The, the, yeah. the credits end, like the movie ends, when they find <laughs> each other and kiss or find each other and get married. That's what the movie should begin. 
Like, <laughs> everyone that's married knows that that is not this, this, the end. That's the start. <laughs> like, dating's important, but come on. Like, the hard work starts now, right? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, it's yeah. just, it's so unrealistic. But you, you said something uh, just a minute ago that knowing is not enough, like at a societal level. And it's the same on a interpersonal relationship level that like, and so Kelly and I talk about this all the time where we'll have, like most couples, we'll have the same fight over and over again, right? Like we'll bump into the same stuff because I'm bringing my same stuff and she's bringing her same stuff from past. And and when I, when I finally have the aha moment, because it, it's honestly, it's like Kelly is my therapist half the time, but she'll help me see a blind spot that I'm in, in the time when I'm activated. Like you said, I'm completely like fight or flight re- response. I freeze, I run away, I kind of shut down and, or I'll get super defensive and point out all the reasons why, you know, I was right. And then later when I finally see it, I'm like, oh, I can't believe I did that. And I have this big aha moment. So then I know, right? So then I've got this awareness and Kelly will remind me that like, okay, that's, that's a step, but now you got to do something like you just knowing doesn't make it different the next time. So the, the work, and especially as us, as men, I think we really, I don't know, maybe I'm projecting, but I really struggle with do the doing the work part. Like I said to, um, my sister and I had a really great talk months ago where I I had this analogy where I'm like, okay, I helped her to see something that was in her blind spot. And I'm like, okay, that's turning on the lights. And when you turn on the lights, we saw that, oh crap, there's like a huge mess in this room, but turning on the lights doesn't clean up the mess. It just helps you see that there's some work to do. Then with the lights on, you're going to have a way better shot at cleaning up the mess, but you still got to roll up your sleeves, right? Like, um, that's the part that I, even knowing that I need to work on that, it's like the next time that I get activated and I, and I have a breakdown, man, is it ever hard in that moment to not be that scared five, six-year-old boy, yeah. that, you know, has the same response. And the myth, I think, is that to not be that boy. But that boy is the most connecting factor you can have. The, the issue, you agree, and this is, I think, what a lot of, self-awareness falls short we learn to identify what we do wrong and that's a continual learning um and then we sort of and sometimes we might learn the why where i learned that here's why each other but we miss the the when we because the moment i i can read a book on basketball they have to show up and they can te- teach me keep my elbow in or have a flat fall through i have to show up and do that and, and so the little boy that gets activated, you know, that awareness is enough that in that fight, some part of you knows, oh, I shouldn't be saying this or doing this. And, and maybe even holds that idea of here's here's why I do it, or, or this is me being a know-it-all, or this is me being defensive. But there's a deeper, relationships are a survival tool for our species for as long as we've existed. So there's a deeper limbic system reason you're doing this. There's a reason your emotion is anger or shame or sadness, um, which is meant to drive a behavior. It's it's not a problem. Problem is now that you've developed a defense that you're doing instead. So if the little five-year-old boy hears Kelly say, Ben, I thought I asked you to take out the whatever, or walk the dog, and you didn't, and now the dog pooped on the lawn or whatever, or on the carpet. And that boy 
gets defensive and knows you can't, don't be defensive. And that's all that exists. Now you aren't actually using the fundamental driver. All you're doing is capping your defense. To, you're trying to change your behavior without changing the why. I see this as trying to, to dam a river. The force doesn't go away. And so the fundamental thing that needs to be seen, maybe you feel like, you know, Kelly, in the way you said that with your tone, I went to a place of feeling like I failed. And that little boy in me, that scared little boy of not being enough came out. And I want to get defensive, but I just want to tell you that before we talk about the dog, that that tone, I, I just feel like that fear that I'm not enough for you right now. And here's what I made a mistake with the dog. Also, I just need you to see that. That's such a different vulnerable and joining place. Now, she may have what's called a block. It doesn't always go well. You heard that and probably thought, shoot, she may bite my head off. That's why it's vulnerable. She'll probably have a block, but with her work, she can say, well, Ben, that's hard for me to hear because when I've asked you multiple times and you don't, it makes me feel like you're not there for me. Uh, and so I want to yell at you right now or I want to be critical because I want you to get, you have to be there for me. You need to be able to rely on you. We're going to spend our life together. I'm going to be sick and old one day. I need to be able to count on you. So the driver is beautiful. The shame, the sadness, even the core anger, which is different from secondary anger, the fear connects people. So I think a lot of what self-growth, psychologically mind people learn is what they do and kind of, haha, and here's even why I did it. But in the moment, they have trouble saying, hey, this part of me is coming up, and here's what's really going on for me. So they don't take the fundamental gift, which is the core emotion, which is built. It has three evolutionary purposes, one of which is relational. Um, so it's built to connect you and decrease because it's, co-regulation that your baby did this right they got upset they cried you you dealt with them you cared, you comforted them we don't we've sort of unlearned that and and in our individualization in our isolation of our culture in men learning not to be vulnerable but that's not just men men just learn not to show fear sadness um vulnerability women also learn they can't show core anger you know they, they just show up a little bit differently but their, their learnings are just different also hindrances but when we can touch that core part of self and turn to each other, it's it's not a problem. It's actually the fundamental gift. The people that are shown statistically to do this become deeper, healthier, um, to the point that they feel less physical pain at times, um, regulates pain in labor, regulates pain in being electrocuted in an MRI study, um, and they live longer. So, sorry, I know I'm kind of going around. It's just, this is so crucial. And this is the hard, the hard part. It's not doing the work in the room alone. You turn the lights on. It's that you, in the moment when you're in that room, is terrifying. You open the door and invite your partner in. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, oh, I love that. Hmm. So a, a bunch of the stuff that you just shared, Dan, um, relates to, and I know we've only got a few minutes left here, but uh, you, you mentioned a couple things that you addressed in your children's book. So badger and turtle? Badger right? and turtle face the storm, yeah. Yeah. So in, in the last few minutes we have here, maybe Dan, if you could tell us tell us a little bit about your, your book. Um sure. why you decided to take uh, an analogy that you used in, in your practice and turn that into um an animated and published um book that people should check out. Yeah, and this is the first time I ever spoke of it in this forum. It just came out, but also I've been kind of it's, 
my challenge in the last year or two has been putting myself out there with my ideas. Uh, a friend of mine calls them idea fairies. You got to let them go um, to the fly. Um, and so it, it, even this is a little, it's easier for me to just do my work behind closed doors. So I feel a little bit embarrassed talking about, but, um, but I will. Well, I so think it's great for what that's worth. I, oh, I, I, I watched your video and looked at the, the website you have for the book yeah. and, I, and I love it. So I, I would love for our audience to hear a little bit about sure. it. Sure. So kind of going off what I was just saying, in my work with couples, I ended up seeing, and in in statistically, empirically, there's a certain pattern that happens with almost all couples. Uh, and the pattern happens because these underlying emotional systems, when you're disconnected, kick in. Uh, and they're formed by childhood of, of um, what triggers them and what you do, your defenses. But the systems are true for every person, which is that in disconnection, since it's a survival strategy, we yearn to reconnect. And if people are securely attached, they can vulnerably reach like what we just talked about. But most of us can't or don't. Or even if they are, once they become dysregulated, they can't. So no one can all the time. And under the stress of that disconnection, one of two things happen. And you can alternate. But I, I used to explain this in clinical terms. It's, it's called pursue withdrawal or demand withdrawal. And people would never remember it. And I started telling them this story that under the stress, one of you, and, and I'll just use stereotypical terms. So he, let's say he, you know, um, they came home, the dog pooped on the carpet. Kelly felt this fear that she couldn't rely on you. And instead she came out critical with the tone or a harsh so she showed up in my mind like a badger, which is she wants to connect, but she's doing a little tooth claw. I grew up in the country, as you know, Ben, and so I always saw these badger holes, and the dirt was really far behind them, and I wanted to see a badger dig on those holes so bad. They're all over, <laughs> but I never saw one. But to me, they're just ferocious. They're just going at it. Yeah, I, um, I have seen it, I, and they are. You have? They, oh, yeah. Oh, uh, Film it next time. I, yeah, uh, I'll send you a screenshot. We, we filmed it last summer. There was this oh, badger on, on a hillside just going crazy, and the dirt was flying exactly like you'd imagine. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> anyway, so one partner tries to reconnect, but a little badgery, so a little tooth and claw, meaning maybe they're a little harsh or a little critical. They can show up angry or they show up demanding. Sometimes they show up anxious or over-planning, over-talking, but they, their vulnerability isn't being seen. They're showing up in this way, just trying to dig. So I picture, I used to tell a story that the stress of life came in, often things like the birth of a child, someone gets sick, a parent gets sick, you know, some, a demanding work, like you were saying, like inflation and, and stress comes in like a storm. And the badge and turtle were walking, holding hands, and they see the storm and they get scared. And so the turtle does what the turtle does. He drops to the ground, digs himself in a hole and goes in his shell. He says things like, I just want this flow over. I don't want to make a big deal of it. To him, he's trying to preserve one of the two fundamental ingredients in a relationship, which is safety. He's trying to not make things worse. And what he's learned, and it could be women or men, I'm just picking a gender, although often it's men. He's learned that by pulling back um, and kind of going inward, it, it keeps things calm. It keeps things calm for him, even though biologically he's actually going nuts inside, but in his mind, it's a strategy to avoid and helps his relationship. Now, the badger sees the stress and gets scared and goes to grab her partner. And the bugger's not there anymore. He's down in the ground. She looks and he's in the ground. <laughs> it's shell. And so she feels abandoned. She feels like, where the heck are you? Like, I need you. Where are you? I'm alone. So she does what a badger does. She drops down and digs, you know, tries to get closer to him. 
turtle, the turtle sees him scratching at her shell, pulls back further, sometimes comes up for a little bite because like a snapping turtle, but generally retreats, withdraws, shuts down, works more, gets quiet, goes into a state, whatever, um, becomes intellectual, problem solves. The badger feels that isolation, and since that's a survival threat, it cues this need to get closer and digs harder, criticizes, gets angry. And so this loop happens under stress with couples. They can get caught in it. You said you fight with the same things. The issue is the storm, is the trigger, and that issue has a trigger for both of you guys why you don't remain regulated or resourced, but it moves you into these primary positions. Now, interestingly, you can flip-flop. I had this once happen that my partner, who was a very big badger and I was a very big turtle, all of a sudden became a turtle in a fight. And I found myself being a badger without knowing. I was just saying things, just saying things. I was like, who is this guy? <laughs> like, um, wow. So you can flip-flop because a relationship always needs connection, which is the badger trying to establish in safety, which is the turtle. But even two turtles that come together, one will become a little badger, like, or two badgers, one will become a little turtle, because like, we fundamentally need these two ingredients. Wow. So anyway, I would tell couples this, and they'd have the reaction you would have, which is hopefully seeing that that applies to you. Yeah. Like, wh- yeah. which are you? Oh, I'm totally the turtle. Totally yeah. the turtle. Yeah. And how do you, what are your turtle ways? Like, how, how do you withdraw? Get silent. Um, defend with that hard shell. Like, yeah. Show, get rational and provide solutions. Right. And yeah, all yeah. Of, yeah. All, almost all of what you described. Which I'm guessing invalidates Kelly's concerns and her bigger than that, her feelings. So she doesn't feel seen. And then she escalates in some way. A hundred percent. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, so that's like when I tell this story, couples would be like, ah, it's me. And they, and, and they wouldn't get upset about it. They wouldn't because it's both people interacting. It's not one of their faults. And There's then they would no come back. Guy. Yeah, exactly. There's no bad guy. It's a system. The problem isn't them. The problem is this pattern. And then they would come back and be like, I was totally turtling. And I caught myself instead of getting quiet. I said, I really want to turtle right now. I really want to shut down right now. Cause I guess I don't feel good. And to, to us, that's like to a turtle. It's like, yeah. You basically said this nothing to a badger that's such relief that says you're not abandoning me. Like, oh, God. And they soften. Um, and so I tell this story and it would matter. And I told this story, honest to God, I've probably told it 400 times. Like it, it and not, it wasn't just part I set to tell it. I would hear this pattern and try to explain it. And I would interject with their personal ways of being a turtle or badger. Um, and so I thought I'm going to, do some of this. So I made the video online, the Badger Turtle video, um, because I wanted to teach people this. I think it can make a difference. And no one taught me this. Um, and then, you know, I also, for me, and statistically, but it's true personally, the hardest, one of the harder times in my relationship was after the birth of children. You know, you're not sleeping, you're stressed, you're exhausted, your identity's changed. Um, there's often health issues. Uh, and I saw this with couples as well. Almost always the start, the, one of the big injuries happened around someone feeling abandoned or their relationship suffering after the birth of one or two children or more. So I wanted, I wrote this book because I wanted to educate parents, but I didn't know how to get in parents' hands. So I wrote it as a kid's book Brilliant. that parents will read to their kids, hopefully. And and I, truthfully, I don't even think it's that well-written. Tom, my brother's a writer. He could have done a beautiful job. But the point is, <laughs> Parents will blunder through this poor, the semi-poorly written book, beautifully illustrated, because I didn't do that, and then <laughs> get to the last page, which explains the pattern. 
And I want them to say, oh, that's what I do. It's not that Ben needs to deal with his emotions better because he's such a cold fish or Kelly needs to have anger management. It's, and I have no idea. So I hope Kelly's never said that. But it's that, oh, when I go in my shell, she feels abandoned. Now I have a golden key. I can say, hey, I feel really overwhelmed. I don't mean to get quiet. I just don't know what to do right now, which is actually showing up. It's just showing up with your need to be quiet. And she can soften and say, hey, I really feel like I want to criticize you because I'm really scared that you won't hear me unless I make a loud point. And I thought if I can even get a little bit of people and parents understanding that at this crucial period, yeah. by crucial, I mean that their relationship is one of the best determinants of their child's long-term health. Their relationship, particularly men's ability to support mothers, um, is one of the best determinants of so much. That's why this Father Matters movement is happening through our CSS and some of the nonprofits, uh, and, and to keep engaged into weather this storm together. So if I can even teach a little bit of that, and they can see it as that, that fundamental perspective shift of you're not a bad guy, I'm not a bad guy, it's this pattern, then, because we can see you can change, and then maybe they can begin to alter it. They don't. They, they could need a couple of therapists, but maybe they can do it themselves. Um, you know, maybe then they can begin to own and change what they can see. And and that was my hope in writing that as a kid's book. Truthfully, it's probably gonna not like I'm not an author. I'm I'm a therapist. I'm not trying to make a million dollars out this or probably sell a dozen copies. But I wanted at least to put this idea out there. To even if I could make a few reach in 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 a way that I wouldn't reach in my office because they wouldn't come in, reach a few parents at this lives, and then ideally make a difference in the child's lives. Because I think when you go get the, from the doctor, you confirm that you're pregnant and you get your test, they should write a script for 20 couples therapy, therapy yeah. sessions. <laughs> Not because you're in trouble, but because it, to strengthen the bond before children are born. Yeah, I think that that would save our healthcare system and save so much problems in the world. I couldn't agree more, Dan such a missed opportunity right there that, and such a need that we've, our society doesn't really. Um... And there's so much shame around it. Yeah. There's so much yeah. shame. People don't openly talk. They'll say mental health, but they won't say, or depression, but they won't talk about that they feel not good enough. They feel this crippling sense of shame or they feel like alone and they can't talk to you. And they don't, we, it's better than it was, but we need to understand mental health as human suffering and normalize the components of that suffering, including in our relationships including our marriages. Marriages are hard. You know, like we need to like, and more than just complaining about each other, really, like we need to understand the hurt that drives us and the thing and that we can't just change the behaviors that show up on the surface without changing how we reach to be seen in that hurt. So that was how the book came about. I mean, um, I hope it can make a little bit of difference or eventually someone will read it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was, I found it very relatable, like I said. So I'm, I'm, we're going to put the link to the website for the book on the show notes for this episode. And uh, I know you need to, to go down it. This is such a therapist thing to say. I think that's all the time we have for today. <laughs> I never <laughs> um, say that. No, you don't say that? All right. No, well, man. man, it has been so good to reconnect with you. I just, I, I love hearing about your work and your life and the stuff that you've been so passionately working at. And I know that it is making a difference. So, um, yeah, just thank you for what you do, Dan. And thank you for talking about it so openly with us today. Oh, no, it's awesome. Thank you for having me. And it's nice to reconnect with you. I've seen you so long, Ben. I um, was telling my kids this memory of your birthday party. And 
riding bikes and they came down the hill into your garage and the bike did brakes and they ran to a bush like like literally yesterday or a couple days ago I told them this story out of the blue. Um, so it's been great connecting and honestly thank you for having me and this is the first time I chat about the book so that's exciting for me. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate it and I appreciate the work you're doing. Well, I wish you the best of luck with it, Dan, and we'll have to reconnect again soon. So right, thanks, ben. thanks again for your time today. And hey, everybody, thanks for listening to this episode. If you'd like to check out more episodes of Six Ways from Sunday podcast, you can find all of those archived on our website at risingspiritministry.com. Just click on uh, the media button and you can find the podcast there. You can also subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So check us out again soon. And until next time, take care and be well.